In Craig's eyes, I'm Dominic Cummins. I've broken the law. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... Welcome to uh, the Dan Joe Film Show. It is episode 13. Can you believe it? Uh, lucky or unlucky 13. It's crazy to think how far we've come. Hope you're well. I uh, hope you're all safe listening at home and hope you're keeping uh, safe during the lockdown as always. It's a lovely sunny day here in South Wales and I'm joined as ever by the gorgeous, the talented, the sometimes too sexually attractive for me to keep my hands off him. It's the one and only Joe Richards. Hello, well, Joe. Well, now you said that, I'm glad we're in lockdown and that we haven't mm. seen each other in Watch a while. Watch out, boy. Watch out. These hands are coming. <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous about meeting you again in Nando's or whatever it may be when, when <laughs> this is all over. Just just to see your reaction. I don't know what you're going to be like, if, if it's going to be suitable for the public eye. You know, kind of us gazing across, across from each other in uh, St. David's 2 and running into each other's arms. I'm a little bit concerned, but I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very, very well, yeah. I, this week is actually flown by. I, I, you know, I do feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is a horizon. And fingers crossed, sooner or later, things will be eased and um, we can, you know, start to, like, see people, maybe. But, you know, I was thinking the weather's so nice, so that helps a lot, although it's a very hot day today. Uh, but yeah, every, everything good with me. Excited for today's show. It's going to be good, I think. But how, how are things with you? Yeah, yeah, good. I had a wicked weekend, like I said to you. On Saturday night, I pulled an mm. all-nighter. Because I don't know when I'm going back to work. I'm supposed to be back in work Monday, and I've heard nothing from the business saying whether or not that is actually going to happen. So I thought, on oh, last weekend, I'll take the kind of potential last opportunity to pull an all-nighter and watch, the, like, literally movies or night me and hannah we each chose a film the running order went like this the first film was Nightbreed, which i doubt very much you have ever seen dan i've never seen it before i was very terrified to watch it because of the visuals but i it was very very entertaining it's like a early 90s uh, horror i chose raw julia decanau's french film which we reviewed on a previous show um, <laughs> which you won't mention. Then she chose Penelope, a film where Christine Ritchie plays a pig. And then I chose The Big Sick, Kamal Nanjiani's uh, rom-com, which um, Hannah absolutely loved. So it's really nice. We had like a full kind of five, six movies back to back and watched the sunrise come up. So just trying to take advantage really of those last kind of final moments before things get back to normal, really. You've been out and about, I see, on uh, social media for your walks and things like that. Yeah, for my walks and my jogs. Yeah, I do enjoy it. Being in the car, you know, going to the supermarket, meeting lots of Karens. We were discussing Karens. There seems to be a lot of Karens about now. A lot of, oh, what are you doing? Don't, don't, eh, eh, eh. But yeah, no, enjoying it. I, I watched a really disturbing film last night. Have you ever heard of a guy called Lars von Trier? I'm yes, sure you have. Yes, yes. Um, you know, very controversial, very polarizing, very avant-garde. He directed a film a couple of years ago called The House That Jack Built. 
nice. uh, which apparently had people walking out of it. It can. And I want it, I've been wanting to watch it for ages. It's currently on Amazon Prime. If you have a subscription, you can go and watch it. It's two and a half hours. Is honestly so disturbing. Um, there are things in it that I've never watched before, and I was just like, it is really bad. It's about if Matt Dillon's in it. Um, I think he's incredible in it. Though, you know, you're watching him like you've never seen him before, and it is basically about a serial killer, and he kind of tracks through, um, kind of all the he calls it incidents, all the people, all like the women that he's killed. It's really, really like it's tough to watch at times, and that last twenty minutes is absolutely berserk. And you'll just be like, you'll be in disbelief, to be honest. Um, oh. So I think if you're a fan of Lars von Trier, you know, you might like it. I think he's a really interesting filmmaker. And I know some people hate him. I know some people get really offended. But I get that. But I don't know. I think two and a half hours, and it really flew by for me. So so basically, if you're a family, gather around on a Sunday night and perfect. <laughs> Family viewing right there, brilliant. Get the popcorn, yeah, get the kids around, get the fire going, the hot cocoa, perfect. Perfect family film, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As always, uh, we've got two guests on today's show, but they need no introduction because they've been on the show before. They're very, very good friends of ours. Uh, they were up back on our episode four where we discussed Sonic and Birds of Prey, which feels like a lifetime ago now, uh, back when we were able to record in our lovely glamorous studio. But joining us uh, via Zoom for this episode, they are two of the presenters on Well Good Movies. Uh, make sure to follow them. Please welcome to the show, Craig McDonald and David Oscar. What up, what up, what up? Remember back in the day when I kept forgetting your name, Craig? <laughs> I mean, it'd be um, impressive if you forgot it today, given the fact that we're on Zoom and it has the name there. <laughs> Although you yeah, know it, that it specifically my surname is not there. It was the next step for you, Craig wearing a name tag. Now oh, yes. Just doing that yeah, for him, testing me. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on today's show, guys. And um, we haven't given too much away of kind of what the plan is. But Dave and I were chatting about kind of themes. We've been trying to find what to do with the episodes for our podcast. And I'm really excited to kind of do this week's episode uh, because it's really interesting. I feel like everyone can like contribute to it, um, whether you're a film lover or you're not. So David, like, uh, you know, tell everyone kind of what, what the plan of the show is today and what, what, you know, what ideas we came up with. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of bringing a bit of the the madness of well good movies to you guys in that you know often we'll sort of look back at films we'll do old favorites or films we've never seen before so recently me and craig challenged each other to watch a film that we've always wanted the other to watch which meant that i watched rent and craig got angry uh, <laughs> but you know he also watched tron and enjoyed tron so that, that's I, my I eyes just out though that the that <laughs> Our audience were fully on my side. We had loads of messages in for people saying, oh, Rent is a great film. How has David not seen it? Great choice. No one has said anything about Tron Legacy. Not a damn word. <laughs> Dan did. Dan, I, you, Dan, you could vouch for this. Dan said he liked Tron Legacy. But, you've, yeah, but you've got your number one fan base over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but did you message me saying, how have you not seen Tron Legacy? No, you didn't. No, but I think we did establish that uh, there was a lot more... F there was Rent stood out as the film that Craig's been going on to me about for years, whereas there wasn't so much a film like that for me. But, you know, we still had fun. And uh, Craig has a lot of musical 
friends. So you know, that, that's good advice. I tell uh, you what, it's, it's going to be a good show. We're, we're 10 minutes in and there's already been an argument. So it's yeah, exactly. yeah it's, it's just the life that me and Craig now live on, on the online. Yeah, we love it. Me and Craig saw each other uh, on the road the other day and I saw one down my window. I think we were half expecting to sort of like argue with each other on the street, but you know, it, it didn't get that far. I mean, um, I was going to yell at him, David, there's a car bug coming behind you. Like, keep driving for God's sake. <laughs> it's lockdown. We're fine. Yeah. So basically, it, it, you know, we've done lots of shows before where, you know, we each take a film and talk about it and talk about our experiences. So, yeah, we were just, me and Dan were discussing ideas similar to that. And one idea that I've had for a long time is the movies that you personally love, but everyone else hates equally. You can do the opposite to that. So it's a great chance for us to all uh, collaborate and sort of do a, a meshing of the shows, which uh, we can talk about later as well. Yeah, so like David said, uh, today's show is all about we've each chosen one film that we personally love that everyone else hates. Uh, it could be critics, it could be audiences hates it. You know, it's really interesting to hear, going to be hearing all about your choices. And we're going to try and defend these films and try and prove to people that, you know, they are worth something. There's an attack coming. I need warriors. Stop right there. I'm in. You are? Yeah. I need friends. On my lead. Let's do it. My turn. Dressed like a bat. You really are out of your mind. There's lots of news this week. Um, the first one being, uh, the internet went wild when this came out. Um, so Justice League, we all know, came out a couple of years ago. Wasn't the biggest success critically, although financially it did quite well. I didn't know about this. Zack Snyder kind of um, started directing it. Then a personal tragedy happened in his life, which I had no idea about. And then he had to leave. And then Josh Whedon took over. Um, and people for years now have been desperately trying to get hold of that Snyder cut, you know, the original cut that he made. And so HBO Max is teamed up now with uh, Zack Snyder. Um, and David, tell us about this, because the insects go wild. Yeah, it's a really crazy situation. And especially for me to be talking about in the sense that I said on record on our DC podcast, you know, I had never heard about this thing. You know, as soon as people start talking about it, I was like, just let it go. You know, they need to start moving on with the DC universe and set a trajectory that they want to stick to. Uh, but they kept going on about it, kept, you know, Snyder kept poking the fires and poking the fans and, and fair play to him, it, it's worked. It's actually done him, you know, the world of good because now, you know, HBO and Warner Brothers has agreed to give him extra money, which I think is a, a massive part of this conversation to to do extra reshoots and extra scenes to execute his vision for like extra visual effects and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's just sort of weirdly set up this new idea of other directors and other films you know release the air cut and all that kind of stuff but as bizarre as some of those are i think most importantly for the snyder cut the circumstances of that were very different it wasn't a case of like earlier i saw fans were petitioning for a three-hour cut of revenge of the sith well george lucas edited and made that film he was happy with the cut that he had Zack snyder had a very different situation in which he was essentially chucked off the film so even though they said about family tragedy it was pretty much the Warner Brothers wanted him gone and the then producer of DC wanted to bring in Joss Whedon to sort of finish it up. So even though they had completed the film in terms of filming, he sort of rejigged it and edited it to become something completely different. And, and that's why I think it is quite, quite fair play to him that, you know, he's going to 
be able to execute his vision because nobody wants to see a film just completely trashed and turned into something else. I, I think I think it'll be interesting to see what the Snyder Cut actually ends up being because I think his original vision was like a four-hour-long movie. That was the and I know Dan would not want to sit in a in a movie theater for four hours watching superheroes kind of beat up uh, each other and the bad guys. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what becomes of his Snyder Cut. Because I think the final product that we had in the cinema was a lovely kind of breezy two hours, which I think I think is great for a, a film of that kind. So it's going to be interesting to see what it ends up being. There's even talk of like kind of dividing it into four parts. So like doing a kind of mini series and having four yeah. one hour long episodes. Um, That's the bit that gets me most excited because, again, I, I don't like Batman v Superman. I said, again, on my review when I did that film, I was like, get Snyder out of here because he's not doing a good job. But I am intrigued by just the idea of taking films and splitting them into series. I think, I'm not sure if I like it, but it's just fascinating how the industry is changing with streaming that that is now on the table. It's, it's bizarre. It's, it's, it's a really weird concept to think about. It is. And like you said, you've now got the fans petitioning for the air cut for the, the Suicide Squad. But it does seem set a dangerous precedent, I think, especially in this day of fan culture where everyone's so divided about everything. Like take Star Wars, like you mentioned, Revenge of the Sith. The Last Jedi, one of the most divisive Star Wars movies of, of recent years. You know, if that was released after the Snyder Cut, would a load of fans all of a sudden start demanding that it, they go back, you know, the, the Lucasfilm and Disney go back and somehow try and re-edit a whole completely new film? The thing is, a devout group of fans genuinely did try to to raise enough money to not just re recut the last jedi but physically have it rewritten wow okay there we go you know so so it does exist and the fact that they've succeeded as lovely as there is for Zack Zack snyder to finish his vision it does set a dangerous precedent and i think for me the snyder cut has been just shrouded in a lot of kind of trolling and like abusive kind of tweets from people who are just so passionate about it. And I think yeah. if it had been done in maybe a nicer way and a more kind of proper way, then maybe I'd be more for it. But it's, it's going to be interesting to see for sure. I totally get what you're saying. I don't agree with you because I think you can make that case for plenty of films. One film that pops into my mind is Hellboy from last year. And that had a lot of meddling in it with productions. Um, David Marshall came out and said, listen, that my vision was not in there whatsoever. But you know what David Marshall did? He just said, okay, well, better next time he went on to a new project. And I do feel sorry for Zack Snyder and what happened. I had no idea the backstory behind it. But I do think some things need to be left alone. And for me, I don't think the original Justice League is bad enough for it to warrant this. I don't think it's good enough for it to be left alone. I, th I thought it was okay. I thought it was bit boring, bit dull at times. I don't know, I, I don't understand. He's, he's getting $30 million yeah. to go yeah. back. And, and re that's crazy money. And especially in the climate we are now where any filmmaker to even be on set is, is, is lucky. And I don't know how they're gonna do it in the next year to have the reshoots done. Um, and you know, when you think about $30 million, that's a massive budget for a lot of budding filmmakers. You know, you could fund five, six films with that amount. So I don't know, I, I'm not on this at all. I, I think it's great if it pleases the fans. I think if it keeps them happy, um, and I think, you know, after this, you know, who's going to stop someone saying, hey, well, Suicide Squad needs a reshoot, blah, blah. 
Yeah. Um, and let's not forget this film's like three years old now. You know, this isn't a spring chicken. I don't know. I tried to watch the original again and I couldn't get through it. I just, I find it, I don't know. I just find it, it's not an awful film. It's, it's not like Suicide Squad where I think you could really see that, wow, this is a mess. Like, I do think it's a pretty competent film in places, and which is why I don't know whether it's worth going back and like saying, right, let's, let's, you know, let's add stuff to it. I don't know. Maybe I'm on my own with this one. Yeah. I suppose the only difference with this one is to me is if they can legitimately make it a different film. If, like you said, it is pretty much the same, then I'll, I'll write it off. But I think if it was a six-part story, if it brought in Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, if they do all these things that he's teasing, that would be amazing. If it is just pretty much the same film with a few extra bits, then I just don't see the point. I just genuinely think at this point we need to get to a situation where we're just focusing on, you know, the new films coming up. Given the fact that, like, especially with DC at the moment, they're in such an uncertain stage in terms of what the hell they're actually going to be doing. I think should probably think about that rather than giving a lot of allowances to just going back to Justice League, a project that I think even if they manage to significantly prove it, I don't think it's going to revitalize so much interest in a universe that is going to, you know, make massive dollar for them. So what's the damn point? There's articles coming out now that uh, the 20, 2021 Academy Awards is likely to be postponed due to the shutdown of film productions and cinemas. Obviously, directors are not able to release their films in time for that catchment uh, window to be eligible for the Oscars. So, Craig, talk to us a bit about this. What, what, what do you think? So while the Academy haven't officially confirmed anything as of yet, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of speculation that this delay is going to happen. And I think... I think it is definitely likely at this point, even though that they've tried to bring in a couple of eligibility changes to try and alleviate a lot of the problems. So one being the idea that they would allow a lot more digital releases to be considered for eligibility, especially if they have their original production release date was going to be within that window. They've even considered the possibility of allowing more than one city to have the seven day run. So originally it was just the idea of Los Angeles, but they've considered moving that now to places like including New York, Chicago, Miami, Atlanta, like the overall Bay Area. But even with those changes, I just don't think there's going to be enough films to come out. And frankly, because there's this joke meme going around at the moment saying that the front runners for best picture of, of 2020 is Sonic the Hedgehog and Trolls World Tour. I want that meme to die. Because as much as Sonic didn't, I don't know, I didn't hate it. To, to say that that is the best pic, like best picture worthy just makes me die a little bit aside. I think also it just shows that Hollywood's having the right priorities in this situation. Because at, at the end of the day, with cinema being in quite an unstable situation, even once the, uh, the lockdown restrictions are lifted, there needs to be a degree to which they focus on how do they revitalize the industry rather than just thinking, okay, how can we carry on with this relatively, as much as I love it, I think it is relatively unimportant in terms of what actual cinema needs to be accomplishing so i think that they probably would be right in in delaying it from its original february 2021 release date i, I agree I, I don't want it to be true but it probably will be true um and i i think they, they could go ahead and do the ceremony um in february next year no doubt i i know by then social distance there might be slight social distancing measures but i think by then i think things will calm down but you're right I, it's about kind of you know the material it's about the films being awarded and they, they can accept a lot of digital releases but they can't have the entire award show being on digital releases i don't think anyway i think it's nice to have a mix and a balance 
Um, and, you know, you're right about that meme. I really hope the little blue paedophile doesn't get to go to the Oscars because <laughs> that would not be good. I think also you just, you just don't want to have like a pile of films just chucked in at the end of the year. That's the big worry at the moment is so many of these summer movies are moving to Christmas in terms of blockbusters. So where is there going to be room for all these awards contenders? It's going to be like, right, this year's nominees are all, you know, 12 films that have come out in the past months because they've all been flocked to the, you know, I think just this year is just a write-off, you know, a lot of major blockbusters. So it's, it's best just to delay it all, I think. And moving on to the main bulk of this week's show. Like we said at the start, uh, David and I came with this great idea this week. So we've each chosen one film that we personally love and that everyone else hates. It's a film that can mean a lot to us. It's a film that we think is underrated and we don't feel like it's had a a very good uh, rap with the critics and the fans. So each of us is going to be given five, ten minutes to defend our film. And at the end of that 10 minutes, um, the other three uh, people who are listening to it, so Craig, Joe, Joe and David in this case, um, are going to vote guilty or not guilty, almost like if we're in a courtroom. And so if they find it not guilty, they agree with you and they think the film does deserve a second chance. And it could be, it could be set free into the wild. But if they find it guilty, oh, it'll be sent to prison. And don't drop that soap, boy. Don't drop that soap. So the film I have chosen uh, for my film that I love, it's a film that came out on Netflix a couple of months ago, and I, I've seen it twice since then. Uh, I watched it, it got released back in 2010, and it is a remake, uh, which I know I say that word, and a horror remake especially. Uh, critics just absolutely hate them, um, and I, I agree on, on most, but I do think this is an exception. So the film I've chosen is the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Every time that I dream, there's always this man. Ready. Is there anybody else out there that this is happening to? It's me, it's you, it's Dean, Jesse, and Chris. It's in all of our heads. Don't fall asleep. Um, now, to point out, I have seen the original. I saw it a year or two ago, and I have a lot of fond feelings of the original. I think Robert Englund is incredible. However, the sequels, not so much. I think it got to about two or three, and I was like, this is getting ridiculous now. And there are so many sequels to the original. Um, they just carry on, uh, the Dreamcatcher, the so-so-so. I mean, I think it's been about seven films of it. So obviously in 2010, director Samuel Bayer, uh, this is the only film he's ever directed. He's a graphics designer and an artist. He decided to remake the film. And instead of Robert England in this, you've got Jackie O'Haley, who some of you may know from Watchmen. Um, and he's done a couple of other things as well. He takes on the role of Freddy Krueger. Uh, you've got Rooney Mara, who back in the day, back when this was made, she wasn't that big, but obviously now she's gone to big things. Uh, she plays Nancy. Carl Garner plays Quentin. You've got Katie Cassidy, uh, who plays Chris. Thomas Decker as Jesse and Kevin Lutz, who plays Dean. And they are our main protagonists in the film. They are the group of teens who are haunted by Freddy in their dreams. So, you know, you know the story. If you've seen the original, something happened in their past when they were children and Freddy now comes back to haunt them and kill them in their dreams. For me, the reason why I kind of love this film is firstly, it's held up. It's held up over time, I think. A lot of horror remakes, I can think of like the Friday the 13th remake, I can think of Child's Play, I can think of Texas Chainsaw. Some of them haven't held up as well, I don't think. And so for me, watching it like a a month or two ago and then watching it a couple of days ago, for me, it's an incredibly enjoyable film. Uh, and the main reason because of that is because of the cast, but in particular, Jackie O'Haley. I thought he did an incredible job. He is unbelievably underrated as the role of Freddy. It's a massive thing to take on after Robert England. Um, and Robert England did not give this film his blessing. 
did not encourage anything of it. Um, and actually, when asked about it, he said, oh, it was the wrong time and it shouldn't have been made. So I think, the, um, you know, Jackie O'Haley, the fact that he came on board, he had a lot to, you know, take on. Um, I thought he did a really, really incredible job. Uh, the makeup, the effects, everything just looks really, really kind of, if they've updated it, but it hasn't looked like it's been updated too much. I think the voice, the mannerisms, he embodies Freddie really, really well. And I, so I think out of everything, he is without a doubt kind of the rising star in this. I also think Rooney Mara and Carl Gallner, who are kind of our leads, especially towards the end. I remember watching 10 years ago and thinking Rooney Mara was just so dull. But I think the way her character is written, she is someone who's kind of a goth emo chick. She's somebody that isn't particularly like, wouldn't scream or shout or, or isn't hugely emotional. But I, you know, I really kind of sympathize with her character uh, and with all the characters in particular. Um, I will point out that I think the worst of the bunch is Kenny Lutz. He's in the first 10 minutes and I was just like happy to see him go, to be honest. But as for the rest of the cast, um, they were criticized because they look too old as teenagers and as high schoolers. I don't see that at all, but that's just my opinion. Other things as well, I mean, speaking about the visuals, obviously Samuel Bayer is an artist at a day job. The film is stunning. Uh, the dream sequences, first off, there are many dream sequences in the film, um, which is great. There's a scene um, involving Nancy in her bedroom where snow is falling. That's really effective. There's a scene where she's running through a house and she kind of falls into like a gallon of blood. And you could say that a lot of the dream sequences are copied from the original, but there are also some new ones as well. You've got the iconic kind of hand coming out of the shower scene, which is obviously from the original. But there's a really, really great sequence involving Katie Cassidy in her bedroom, which, which is not in the original, which I really, really appreciated. Um, and like I said, the visuals are stunning. They've held up over time, I think. And for me, when people call it a remake, I understand that. For me, it's more of like a reimagining. I think, you know, like I said, visually, some really, really nice um, special effects here. And pacing-wise and editing-wise, the movie slows really nicely. It's 90 minutes. I don't know how people have watched this and, and gone out and said, oh, that was like a chore to sit through because I've seen it like four or five times now and each time there's something new for me to, to enjoy. I love this remake. I think it's got a really bad rap for no reason. I think it's underrated. Critically, it's been absolutely panned. It's coming up 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. If you go on Letterboxd, people hate it with a passion. And it's just one of those films, I do not see it. There are plenty of bad films that I enjoy and I can go, oh, okay, I can see it from your point of view. I can totally respect that with this. I just don't know why, I just do not see it. I think obviously the fact it's a remake, you know, straight away people hate it because it's a remake and it's trying to tarnish the name of the original. I don't think so at all. I think this is darker. I think this is grittier. I think this is bloodier than the original. And I think it kind of holds its own for me. So um, yeah, there we are. I've argued it. I've argued my case now. Eat me alive, boys. <laughs> yeah, I've not seen the remake um, oh. at all. Uh, I would have watched it. I would have watched it. That's um, how bad it is. Know. Everyone's but, just avoided it like yeah, a plague. I've exactly. only seen pictures. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so, so Craig has seen pictures. So Craig has uh, seen m the major most of it compared to me and David then. Um, but I mean, yeah, like David said, you've kind of sold it. I mean, you've, the important thing for me with remakes, I guess, is that it's trying to do something different. And you said that this does do something different, I guess. Yes, I mean, I would say so. But, you know, all I'm going to say is just give it a, give it a watch. And if you, if you don't like it, that's fair enough. I respect that. But, yeah, I think, you know, for me, I think it does add a lot to the original. It is terrifying. Like, I haven't had a nightmare in months. I watched it, like, a month or two ago. That night, I had a really bad nightmare. Not of Freddy, but of, like, something else that really shook me up. 
And so that, it never happens often. And that's kind of the, one of the reasons I was like, okay, well, the film must be working on kind of a psychological level for me to get a nightmare. So I've chosen uh, the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I'll leave it up to the judges. What do you guys think? Is, is Nightmare on Elm Street based on any original content? Is it, so when, because interestingly... Yes, a pre-existing film. No, th- that's why I'm on about the, <laughs> the original film. So, original. Because this comes up a lot when you are talking about remakes, etc. If, you know, if it's based on a book or something, then is it a remake? That kind of thing. So... I don't believe it is based on a book. No. Obviously, the original's directed by Wes Craven, and it's it's based on this, this tale of the Pied Piper, apparently. But I don't believe it's based on a book, unless I'm wrong. No, I wouldn't think so. Okay. It, it seems like very much a, a movie sort of thing. But it is it is interesting which people talk about remakes because then it's you just taking a film that already exists, which had nothing before it, and then just copying the exact same thing. So you know, beat for beat kind of thing. Like that's a lot of the reasons. You know, people have beef with the the Disney remakes and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you don't yeah. feel that it's a, you know a beat for beat remake, then you know I think it has justification to e- exist. And you know, like you said, I think what you said about you know artistically, if there's a lot visually different about it, then you know it's, it sounds justified in that sense as well. I will say, from what I've seen, it definitely seems ambitious in terms of what it's doing with the original. So, I think in terms of bringing a new spin. I'd have to support it on those grounds. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so, in conclusion, uh, do we got, do we find uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street the remake guilty or not guilty? Is this just is it just called Nightmare on Elm Street? Is it just <laughs> the remake? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, well, well, what else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was just thinking if if you put that in the title, I mean, it's like would somebody be like, is this the original or the remake? Yeah, yeah that is true. Actually, to be fair, yeah. And Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street in brackets, twenty ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to request that last question stricken from the record for irrelevance. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, what do you think? Have I been have I been let off with this? Uh, one? Yeah, I think I think that's fine. I I don't think this should be condemned or convicted. Thank you, Judge. Judge Joe, what do you think? Well, I know what your film taste is like when it comes to horror movies, certain horror movies. So, I am very tempted to give it a guilty verdict. I'm not going to lie. Just because in the past, you know, some of the choices you've given me have been... What? Um, have been ridiculous. <laughs> so, but for, with everything as it is, as it stands, with the fact that it apparently is trying to do something a little bit different, and the visuals, I'm all for great visuals in a movie, I will say that not guilty. Oh, thank you, Joe. And finally, Craig, what do you think? As there is grounds of uncertainty for the bad quality of this film, I have to dismiss it. Therefore, I say that this film is not guilty of being bad. (laughs) Thank you you so much. (laughs) Okay, so we've got some similar themes coming up here, but uh, only only in terms of certain comments made about it, etc. So today's case I want to make is for Legacy. And we all have these filmmakers that we all know sort of dip in quality as they go later in their career. And one such filmmaker, a lot of people have trashed on in recent years. And it's fair enough, I think Spielberg, Zemeckis, they're not what they used to be. But a film I'm talking about today is one that I think is from his heyday. And a lot of people will categorize it within that time. But again, it comes down to this idea that people have seen an original film and hold on to their nostalgia for that film. And they love it so much that they're like, no, this isn't that film. 
despite what the source material is, and they just don't like it because of that, and they just call out a lot of weird and spooky things about it they don't like, which I think is weird considering the source material. So my film is the 2005 Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from Tim Burton. <laughs> Mr. Wonka, I'm Violet Beauregard. Oh, I don't care. Well, you should care, because I'm the girl who's gonna win the special prize at the end. Well, you do seem confident, and confidence is key. I'm Veruca Salt. It's very nice to meet you, sir. I always thought a Veruca was a type of wart you got on the bottom of your foot. <laughs> I love your chocolate. I can see that. So do I. I never expected to have so much in common. You. You're Mike TV. You're the little devil who cracked the system. And you. Well, you're just lucky to be here, aren't you? So I've got quite an argument here because I know a lot of people find this a very Marmite movie and a very Marmite performance from Johnny Depp specifically as well. But a lot of the reason that I love this film is, again, personal nostalgia. So that's why I can understand people's feelings towards Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But to me, you know, I, when I was growing up, I really loved Roald Dahl. You know, I loved the books. One of my favorite Disney films is Hunchback of Notre Dame, the darkest Disney film. You know, I liked things like The Black Cauldron, you know, Labyrinths, Dark Crystal, you know, those kind of weird, dark, creepy stuff. That's my jam a lot of the time. And I think when I watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kid, after watching The Witches and James and the Giant Peach, I was not impressed even as a child. You know, I liked the songs, it, it told the story, but I didn't feel like it was Roald Dahl. It just felt like an American version of, of the story. So when Tim Burton came out with his version, I was really excited because it was at the time in which I was getting really excited about different filmmakers and looking at different styles. It was at the time in which there was a lot of drama in my family. So I remember going to see this with my mum in the cinema, which was nice. And it's also, I don't know, if you feel this way about other films, guys, but it's one of the last films I can remember which had a massive campaign behind it in which I saw it everywhere. Like, it had sweets, it had adverts everywhere. You'd go into your local news agents, there'd be, like, little standees of all the Willy Wonka chocolate, and there's TV adverts, everything. Had, you know, we had one of those, like, funky 90s, early 20, 2000s websites. So I just have a lot of nostalgia for, for that aspect of it. But... I do love the film and I think there's a lot to defend for it. I think visually it's amazing. I think that Tim Burton really wanted to go with the sort of practical with CGI element, which has worked quite well, you know, recently with things like Star Wars. I think the casting is perfect. I think, again, that's why I hold it in higher esteem than the original. David Kelly, to me, is Grandpa Joe. He's brilliant. Freddie Highmore does a really nice job as Charlie. All the grandparents, you know, they get to actually do something in this film. They get to speak, unlike in the original. All the kids are amazing. Each one of them is perfectly cast as the role. And yeah, I just love exploring the film. I love the Tim Burton sound, uh, sorry, the Danny Elfman soundtrack. It's so weird. It's so different. And that's why I love a lot of Tim Burton films, because you don't feel like you're watching anything by any other director. It feels so different, so against the grain. The opening alone has got this weird theremin, you know, peculiar 
retro-y sort of music and, and that carries on throughout, you know, Tim, uh, Danny Elfman takes the original songs that Roald Dahl has in the book and sort of makes them into these genre pieces and musical set pieces in the film. But it's not like the original, it's not a musical, it's just a film that has music in it. Yeah, I, I, I just think that there's loads in there that, you know, I do love. A lot of the backlash comes from Johnny Depp's performance. People say that he's too creepy and too scary, in which I just say, have you seen the tunnel scene from the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? I think reading the original book, I feel that you know, Gene Wilder has definitely elements of Willy Wonka and Johnny Depp covers elements of Willy Wonka. I don't think both either of them do a perfect job of the role. So I'm not defending Johnny Depp, all of Johnny Depp's choices, but why... I do enjoy it because it's so layered. There's so many elements of it you can enjoy. He talks a lot about how he wanted it to be this cheesy game show host and then like a children's TV host. And you can see elements of that. You know, he brings in this sort of like when he's presenting the, the chocolates through the television, that's the kind of game show presenter aspect of him. And then you've got the weird kooky, I've been isolated in a factory for 20 years element of it, which again, I understand is weird, but I just like it when filmmakers and performers are just a bit out there and they try something a bit different. So yeah, I, I love the visuals of it. I think it's really inventive. I think they really go bold with it. The sets look amazing. The music does wonders. And it just, it does just mean a lot to me. And I think all of the cast and the fact that you've got, you know, the Dahl family was more heavily involved in this film. I don't think it helps the Dahl didn't like the original film. Obviously he wasn't around to comment on this one at the time I doubt he would have liked this one either because I don't think he likes you know film and television full stop but yeah I know it's a <laughs> it's a tough sell but I think the you know for me film is a lot about you know the music the visuals and that's why I just love sort of like seeing this film and experiencing it but yeah come at me <laughs> maybe I should start with saying that the original Gene Wilder movie <laughs> is in my top 10 movies of all time. So, oh, <laughs> oh boy, well done, David. I'll explain um, the death stairs. I got no, 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 no. <laughs> um, Yeah, I love the Gene Wilder film. I, think. I, I do want to say, though, I, you know, I love the music of that. I could listen yeah. to, you know, Pure Imagination, Golden Ticket. I love that, you know, that film for the music, etc. Yeah. I just don't feel it's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's not my Roald Dahl sort of experience, kind of. Yeah. No, no, no. You do not get to backpedal on this, David. You made the <laughs> statement. You stand by it. No, I'm just saying that I didn't get to bring up that point. So. But um, Pure Imagination. <laughs> Well, I wanted to mention that in, in what, the... What, you two, segment. stop it! Stop <laughs> it right now! I wanted to talk about the music in the Gene Wilder one. I'm not saying I hate that film, but it, yeah. Yeah, I, it just means a lot to me, that film. And, and I think the soundtrack is a big reason of that. Pure Imagination is one of, like, I think the most beautiful songs, you know, I've kind of heard on film. Um, I've been to see it, uh, the Sam Mendes musical in London as well. And I, I remember just like nearly welling up when Pure Imagination, those kind of opening kind of chords of Pure Imagination were going to start. So for me, the original holds, you know, a, a very kind of strong place in my heart. In terms of the remake, I wasn't that bothered with it. I don't think I neither loved it or hated it. I think I saw it again. I think weirdly, I think I saw it with my mum, with my family. And I thought it was fine, but it wasn't something I was going to rush out and kind of watch again. And it, and it certainly 
you know, just made me want to go back, if anything, and watch the Gene Wilder version. I think Roald Dahl adaptations, I've seen better as well. I think if you do a good Roald Dahl adaptation, my favourite being probably other than uh, Willy Wonka, Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think is so inventive and so beautiful with, with the animation. So I do think there's been maybe better adaptations. But then I can't say that I hated it either. I think it was perfectly fine middle of the road so i'm kind of torn on this one i'm gonna have to yeah. deliberate on my verdict while um craig i think has got quite a lot to say i i, I get the same a lot of people do have that same reaction on ron tomatoes it's like 52 percent critics liked it and on Lairbox, there's a lot of three stars there's a lot of people who like it for nostalgia but there's just then a lot of vocal people who are like this is horrific this is scary you know and it's like have you read the book kind of thing <laughs> Yeah, so I was actually quite relieved when you said that. They're going to say another film then. But I will point out that actually, when I looked online, like a lot of critics do love the film. So I don't, I know what you yeah. mean though. It is one of those films. It's like, yeah, it's, it has like a reputation around it, hasn't yeah. it? Um, I'm like you. I remember watching it when I was like nine years old. I remember playing the GameCube game. Remember GameCube? <laughs> oh boy, it takes me back. And I've watched the original recently. It's always playing on ITV. It felt like those Back to the Future movies, eh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little too. <laughs> um, <laughs> they play both so I, to be fair yeah they, they have Charlie yeah. and Willie on one quite a lot yeah they, they play them both and I do think they both have fan bases I mean I've got to be honest with you I, I kind of defend you on this one to be honest I think you know there are things that I like in the remake that I prefer, you know, prefer to the original however I would say I do prefer the original overall uh, mm. and in particular the children I find the original um, Charlie to be just so sweet and warm and you really care about him in the remake, uh, not so much. Like, he's okay. But, for example, I thought um, Johnny Depp did a really commendable job as Willy Wonka because I think you need to understand that Gene Wilder's performance, no one can remake it, no one can replicate it. But what Johnny Depp did, he kind of had that quirkiness and that darkness that Willy Wonka has. But also, like, he's very different to the uh, Gene Wilder's interpretation, I think. Yeah. And I think he's kind of a bit, like, much more awkward and weirder. Yeah. Um, and so I will defend Johnny Depp, especially, because I think not many actors can take on that role. Um, and so I think it did a really good job. I think visually it's very nice looking, but you're going to get that with a film that's much older. Um, the Oompa Loompas I liked as well, although you can't beat a bit of the orange tan back in the original. <laughs> I mean, I see some girls in night out looking like that, so there we are. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, overall, David, I think I will defend you on this one. There's one, there's one element I hope Craig mentions in his, his, his justification. My big problem is that I just don't like Tim Burton as a director. I think... <laughs> I'm sorry, I feel like a lot of Tim Burton films end up looking the same. And I think that there is a, an argument to be made in terms of a lot of the visual style that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory basically falls within that sort of visual design of all of his films. So for me, it sort of loses that ability to be unique with its, with its design and its character, when a lot of it just looks so dark anyway. Even the inside of the Chocolate Factory itself, it doesn't have the same form of like light-hearted color vibrance that the original does and i think that's what makes the the actual dark creepy scenes like the tunnel scene and what happens to the children all the more compelling when you go into this when you go inside and the color just there just seems to be so much shading i don't know i just i just don't get on board with that and then also just the way in which the characters are written so i think dan is right in the johnny depp 
in terms of what he was given was commendable. I just think that the way they wrote his role was just... Granted, this is going to be personal. It's just not what I feel Willy Wonka should be. I feel that he was quite too dismissive of the idea of just like the general children and the family. I'm also just not a fan of Charlie in this film because I think that he's a bit too... I think he's a bit too wooden and a bit too good because, you know, in the original, he's a bit more energetic and a bit selfish, to be honest. Like, he, bas- he basically just acts like a kid. He acts like a kid in a chocolate factory, right? I think there are going to be times where you are going dis- to disobey. You are going to take the-, the fizzy lifting drinks and there are going to be repercussions for this. Like, the-, the Charlie in the new film, he doesn't do anything like that. I mean, he-, he turns down the chocolate factory at the end of the film, right? That, that's- that is not a rational decision. Just for me, on, I mean, just on a number of grounds as well. Like, I, I just wasn't as invested in the cast. I just saw it as a generic Tim Burton film. So it just lost a lot of charm for me on those grounds. So I, I'd have a hard time defending it personally. I will say for a lot of the, the stuff that Craig has said, though, to me, I think the visual thing is completely untrue. I think that there are obviously dark elements, but in the book, you know, it's snowing in the book. It's it's obviously a trope of Tim Burton. There's snows, but you know those dark elements are already there. I think the chocolate room is very very vivid. Yeah, it's got some dark walls, but like it's really really vivid. I think the the sets, you know, it's really bright reds, really bright blues in the nut sorting room. So I I completely disagree with that. I think Freddie Highmore. Yeah, I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think Tim Burton did clearly say that he wanted Charlie to be an average kid. That was the point of Charlie: is that he isn't anything special and it is just the fact that you clear through these kids and then you are left with just then these two like lucky ordinary people and I, I you know I can get on board with that I I never bought the fizzy lifting things and again I'm just going with like being more faithful to the books I know he doesn't turn down the factory in the original books but again the dolls were happy that they wanted just a bit more drama just to sort of extend the story a bit and and they didn't want it to be like oh well you just guessed the factory so that just gives an extra twist just to make you know, the, the newer film just have a bit more edge to it. Yeah, I think having Mulder over, I think my verdict, because you said it has personal feelings to you as well, you know, it has that personal kind of nostalgic, but, you know, nostalgic feeling to it. And I get that. There are some films which are a bit ropey, which I've kind of watched in, in recent years and gone, ooh, that film is not as good as I kind of thought it was, but it still has meaning to me because obviously of of the experience of watching it so for kind of tugging on the heartstrings a little bit there David um, and the fact fact that simply there's not much I hate about it like I said there's nothing I love about it either and I would always tell people to kind of watch the original over this any day of the week but there's nothing I particularly hate or infuriates me about the movie, so I will uh, find it uh, not guilty. I'm gonna I'm gonna second that as well. I you know I, the way I see it, the original is the main course, and this is a sweet dessert. Uh, I think it, it, there's nothing wrong. It does not tarnish the name of the original, but I would recommend people maybe go and watch the original over the remake. I thought Johnny Johnny Depp did a commendable job. I agree about Tim Burton. I think recently he has gone very down. Hill. but I think when this was made about 15 years ago he was in his heyday and I think visually there are stuff to enjoy um, and yeah so I'm gonna find Charlie in the Chocolate Factory not guilty yeah for me I think pulling on the heartstrings is basically why there are murderers still on the street at the moment <laughs> I also think if we're gonna be if we're gonna be looking at the defense point of view starting off your defense with a beloved film thinking I wasn't impressed with that it's not, very, not a greatly persuasive thing to do for me there are just too many 
just too many flaws and it just it doesn't stand out for me so i am i am going to say this film is guilty in craig's eyes i'm dominic cummins i've broken the law (laughs) 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 oh This one I found really, really hard. A lot of time kind of thinking about movies, having a quick look at Rotten Tomatoes to just check if it was as hated. Because obviously you've got films with like cult followings and things these days. In the end, I did settle on a film which has somewhat got a cult following, but on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment, it currently stands at 15% critic rating and only a 17% audience uh, rating based off of like 88,000 kind of ratings. And this is a film released in 2006, really interesting. This is again a remake, and I'm gonna go for the Nicolas Cage vehicle, The Wicker Man. And Daisy, will you tell us what man represents in his purest form? Yes. Phallic symbol, phallic symbol. School's really changed since I was a kid. How dare you stand there and frighten my children? Sorry, I'm Edward Malis from California. I'm a policeman. See my badge? What's your name? Lily. Lily, I'm Officer Ed. Hi. Could you pass that around for me, sweetheart? That is her name, Rowan Woodward. Do any of you recognize the name or the photograph? Whose desk is this? What? He trapped the little old bird inside to see how long he can stand it. Now why in the hell would you let them do a sick thing like that? Where's the attendance record? Do you have Sister Summer Isle's authority? No, I do not have. You seem to forget that this is a legal matter. I'm afraid you still need her permission. Put that back. Put that back. Sorry, you're going to have to bear with me. Rowan Woodward is your classmate, isn't she? Isn't she? That is her desk. And you're the biggest liar of them all. I am warning you. You tell me another and I'll rescue myself. That is a promise, Miss... Rose. Sister Rose. Of course. Another plant. Rose. For the last time, where is this girl? I was 18 at the time. And I remember seeing it in the cinema. It was like my first year of university and seeing it with a group of friends, I think helps. I think that that is like the ideal viewing of this movie uh, with a few friends and like a few drinks. And I'd seen Nicolas Cage movies, obviously by that point, you know, I'd seen Con Air, The Rock. I was a big fan of those movies, Leaving Las Vegas. And I liked Cage. And I knew he had like a kind of pennant for kind of doing like bad films, like over-dramatic kind of performances. But I don't think I'd seen, actually seen him all out cage as we know him now on the big screen before seeing him in The Wicker Man acting like he does. You know, it must be said that I went in as well with no, unlike kind of Willy Wonka and uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I went in 
with no kind of real affection for the original Wicker Man. So that, that must be said. I, I'm kind of judging this based on the fact that, you know, Wicker Man, I can give or take it. I'd seen it. I'd studied it literally that year in university, weirdly. And, uh, but I didn't kind of love it. I'm not one of these people who considers it like one of the best horror films of all time, even though I can certainly see why people would think that. There's a lot of great stuff in it. The biggest thing for me, and the biggest thing kind of looking on Rotten Tomatoes and everything like that, is a lot of people say it isn't scary. I didn't really think the original was scary for one. And I think, yeah, you, you're absolutely, the people who say it isn't scary, you're right, it, it absolutely isn't scary. Um, people who say it isn't a patch on the original, yes, you're absolutely right in a, in, in a way because it, it's not trying to be the original. But those who say that the remake isn't funny, I take real issue with, okay? Because this is one of the most funniest, like, black comedies, I think, like, un underappreciated black comedies that we've had in the last decade or so. Look at, like, just YouTube it like Nicolas Cage, The Wicker Man, and all the videos which come up. And I actually did YouTube it for like clips for the show and things like that. And I think the first comment says like, this is one of the best comedies I've ever seen. And I think it all depends on your reading of The Wicker Man. If you go into the 2006 remake expecting something similar to the original, expecting something like overly serious, um, something like really sinister and dark, then, then you're gonna, obviously going to be really disappointed by this, even though it does try to do those things, especially towards the end with the like kind of leg breaking scene and the bees, the bees. It, it, it never kind of reaches that, that kind of um, level. It is a dark comedy, and for those who don't think it is, I mean, I don't know how you can watch it and see those scenes, like um, when he's like pointing the gun at a woman on a bike, and he's like, step away from the bike, step away from the bike, and like when he deadpan walks across the room and like says nothing, and then just suddenly like punches the woman. I don't agree with that, but it's just so funny, like the way he does it, his performance is just hilarious. And like with a big costume and he's like running around this island, like just knocking people out. And for me, I think it deserves to be let off because it is real, really. You know, me and Dan, we're big fans of Nicolas Cage. And it is a kind of turning point, I think, in Cage's career. Like when you look back at Cage's career and his film history, I think this will be the turning point for him in the sense that it's the first time I remember going on Twitter and Facebook and just all these memes and all these videos of his performances, just taking a life of his own, those moments. To this day, I think those moments have kind of taken a life on uh, of their own. So some people say it's unintentionally funny, but I disagree. I mean, IMDb, Nicolas Cage, I can only go by what he says. He might be kind of backtracking a little bit, but he does say, there's an interview with him and he does say, like they deliberately made it like darkly funny that it was intentional. And I've got to agree because like his performance is, it just kind of goes along with that. I mean, he is, he is one moment so like deadpan and the next is just like crazy erratic in the stuff that he says. So yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it definitely is one of those films which again has found its cult following. So again, I think it is deserving of being found not guilty. 
And I think it is film history in terms of Nicolas Cage. Ever since then, I've just loved Nicolas Cage. Anything he's in, I will watch and I just get excited for it. I think he knows exactly what he does and he does it well. And I think the film itself, if you do want to kind of inject a little, you know, kind of subtext to it or whatever, I guess you could say it's got stuff to say about gender. The fact that this man just kind of walks onto this island and literally does whatever the hell he wants. Like, as soon as he arrives, he, like, kills a bee. Like, and, and they're like, why would you do that? And he just has no kind of care about respecting the culture or their beliefs or anything like that. So it's got stuff to say about gender if you want to kind of, you know, look into it at that level. But I think it should be looked upon as it was intended to. A hilarious, really funny Nicolas Cage performance with some really kind of funny, iconic moments. Here's my thing, because I agree with you in that I love the film. But hearing that it was meant to be, or the actors are claiming that it was intentionally, it was intentionally funny, sort of loses a little bit of that charm for me. Because one of the reasons that I, I loved it so much is because there are times where it just seems that they're trying to be so, so dramatic, so serious and just failing at that. That's where a lot of that comedy comes from. So like the scenes you're talking about, we're like, you know, say just being in a bear costume and just punching a woman in the face. It's so <laughs> surreal. And so this on paper is a bad idea. Like I have to laugh at the, just the ludicrousness of it. It's just that thing where I want it to be, I want it to be, no, they were trying to be dark and dramatic rather than we're trying to, we're trying to be funny. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to weigh that. I also don't know how I give my vote to something on the on the basis of I think it's so bad it's good. Does that yes. mean that I agree it's a bad film, therefore it needs to be guilty? Or do I think because I get so much enjoyment from it, I can't say that it's something that deserves to be called guilty and let it off? Like, what what do I do? Like, in my mind, I think of it, we recently had this when we were talking about Adam Sandler films and we had it before talking about bad rom-coms. Why would you remind us of that, David? <laughs> But there is a difference between bad comedy and then, again, The Room had the same thing where afterwards they were like, oh, yeah, we intentionally were, you know, making it a comedy. And everyone was like, did you? Did you really kind of thing? And obviously the disaster artist plays on that. I think Joe's argument is that it's not a case of like, I'm defending this film because it's it is good and people say it's bad. It's, you know, people hate it and because they they don't appreciate the kind of thing. So I think that's fair enough. There's, if it does bring something to the table, then you should hate on it for that reason. You can say that it's a bad film, but there's no reason to hate on it if you just don't personally find it funny. And, and like Joe said, I think the fact that, you know, the director, Neil LeBute, he did that Renee Zellweger film, Nurse Betty, you know, that's a comedy as well, which is you know, a nurse, you know, and her husband's murdered, etc. So, he, you know, he does have a history of those kind of dark comedic you know projects so and yeah my instant thought was don't get rid of that film <clears> because <throat> i don't want to see the end of uh, the bees I, I, I love that meme you can't get rid of no the bees the bees so I, i'll say that you know i'll i'll defend this and say that it's it's innocent just if nothing else than for the bees well i tell you what i am so proud of you brother we've come a long way and i tell you what Nicolas Cage would be proud of you right now. He'd be proud. Um, and I just want to say, this film had a really deep impact on my life. I got stung by a bee two years ago today. I know it was a traumatic experience. And as I was over the kitchen table, 
splashing water in my eye, I just got flashbacks of what would Nicolas Cage do in this experience? <laughs> so I just screamed and shouted and called my agent. No, I, I, I'm so glad someone chose this. If we were all drunk right now, this would be even better. This would be a great episode, wouldn't it? If we were all just drunk and like, hey, the bees, the bees. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm defending this film to the death. I, you know, this was the first film that made me like jump on the, on the Nicolas Cage train. Honestly, I remember watching this in my grandma's house at like 11 years old. The first time I watched it, I, I took it seriously. But then I was like, well, what's going on here? What, why, why is he in a bear costume? You know, you're right. Why is he pulling over on the bike? <laughs> all um, the right questions. I, I, all the right questions. Um, and the fact, you know, that um, you didn't study this film instead of the original is a crime against your course, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think this film has stood the test of time. It has not out outdated at all. I think it's one of the best Nicolas Cage movies. And I do agree. I think, you know, do we find it guilty because it's, you know, so bad, it's good, or blah, blah. I think, you know, we should think of it as, okay, do, is everyone else wrong about it? So all the critics who gave it really horribly, and I think we are exactly. wrong, because I think, I think, you know, they've said, they've made excuses before about other films, saying, oh, well, it's so bad, I just enjoyed it. And, I, you know, I'd happily sit and watch this again. For me, the one thing, with the whole Nicolas Cage, and if he was like, yeah, we were taking it, you know, we, would, we, you know, we, we, we thought we wanted it to be a comedy. I don't entirely buy it. I do think it was half and half. I think they went in with the intentions of actually kind of respecting the original and making it somewhat serious because there are some serious moments in between it. And in the last 20 minutes, it's just like batshit crazy. But I, you know, I, I, so I, I'm half and half with that. I do think, you know, they, they would kind of going in with serious and then they saw the end result and was just like, let's just, let's just say it was funny. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'm defending you all the way. I'm defending you all the way. I do have to wonder about Joe after this, though, because the amount of times the cult films, the films about cults seem to come up in, in his I conversation. Know. You were saying yeah. about Wicker, Wicker Man, you were like, oh, it's not a proper horror. And I was like, isn't Midsummer, which is like your favourite film from last year, often called a Wicker Man? Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what, so Midsummer is... could, have, could have done with a bit more Nicolas Cage, I think. <laughs> a bit more bees. Maybe he could be in the remake. Who knows? <laughs> like, give it ten years, and he'll be Florence Pugh in the um in the flowers. <laughs> there was I me thinking, is Joe secretly in a cult? But now it's just clear that it's a Nicolas Cage cult. So no. Yeah, it is. It is the cult of uh, Cage. I will say Craig. before we carry on that the original Wicker Man is genuinely one of my favourite films. Oh um, no. <laughs> I don't think it is scary. I think the horror for that film is just in terms of how unnerving and disturbing it can be. So that's where I sort of defend it on that grounds. Uh, and that is also the reason why, like, I think if they were genuinely going for, like, black comedy, I think there are, like, weirder ways they could have taken the surrealism. So that's why I think they genuinely were trying. Like, I, I, I said up front, I defend you, and I've made my decision. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend you as well. I think Cage deserves better. I think he went through a lot in that film. Uh, women did not like him after that movie. Uh, bears did not like him after that movie. Bees did not like him after that movie. But you know what, Cage? I liked you after that movie. So I'm giving this not guilty. Yeah, yeah. I do agree. It seems a unanimous one on that. I haven't gone for a remake. Technically, I've gone for what is classified as a reboot, or in this case, a spin-off. So while I think critical reception for the film that I've gone for was 
more considered lukewarm rather than actual hate. I think socially there's a degree to which what it represents is something that's incredibly hated. And I think it's basically part of a trend that is despised by film going communities. And I think that this particular film is one I want to defend, which is that of the all female recasting. This is one of the big films cited uh, within that. I can see Dan's looking a bit worried. It's not Ghostbusters. I promise you that it's not Ghostbusters. The film that I've chosen is Ocean's 8. Okay, everybody, let's get started. We would like to present you all with a hypothetical situation. How hypothetical? Not very, unless we screw up. $16.5 million in each of your bank accounts five weeks from now. In three and a half weeks, the Met will be hosting its annual ball, celebrating its new costume exhibit. And we are going to rob it, not the ball itself, but a very important set of diamonds that will be attending the ball. On the neck of Daphne Kluger. Who? Rose will be dressing. The Tucson? Very good. Once Daphne is inadvertently on board, we can then get the necklace out of the Cartier vault, hack the Met security system, thank you, Nineball, and infiltrate the gala, considered to be one of the most exclusive... The most exclusive. The most exclusive party invitation in America. So go home, get your affairs in order, because tomorrow we begin pulling off one of the biggest jewelry heists in history. So the reason it's a spin-off is because it t- does take place within the same universe as Ocean's Eleven. So the fact that Debbie Ocean, who's played by Sandra Bullock, uh, is the sister of George Clooney's character, Danny Ocean. And first of all, I just want to say, I think that the, the casting choices, bar one severe exception, uh, is a spectacular. And I think if you're going for wanting to showcase the strength of uh, female actors and female performances, they've gone for an absolute tour de force. So like I said, you've already got Sandra Bullock, but then the fact that they also have Kate Blanchett, Anne Hathaway, Mindy Kaling, Sarah Paulson, Aquafina, Rihanna, Helen and Bonacarta, just as that sort of all-star cast of female uh, performers. And just within the film, they're all incredibly strong and they're all incredibly likable. Granted, some of them are... um, a, a little bit weird. I'm not sure how I feel about Helen and Carter with an Irish accent, but she does pull it off given that her character is very ditzy and like, a, you know, fairly disgraced as being a fashion designer. But for me, one of the big, big reasons why I love this film and I'm willing to defend this film is that in terms of general genres of films, heist films, hustle films, they're basically my favorite type. I just love watching certain jobs be pulled off, like look, looking like the planning stages and how those planning stages interact with like the character developments of the films. There's a nice little parallel in this film between this one and Ocean's Eleven because both of the Ocean characters, they, they're basically planning a heist, but also involved is getting, getting their own back on, uh, getting revenge on like a, an ex uh, involved in that so what because I, because I saw this film before Ocean's Eleven I feared that it was just going to be oh this is a case of just the woman uh, just the woman scorn but no it's a nice little it's a nice little reverse of what they did in the first film where Danny's basically trying to win his, his win his wife back in this situation she just wants 
to pay, basically punish the guy who sent her to prison because she fell for him. And I thought, especially if you're going to look at this through like a, a particular, like, I guess if you want to say feminist lens, I thought it was a really good way of just showing women regaining power. And I think there's a lot of that with this film as well, because one of the big problems the heist cultures have is this idea of like the woman is only meant to be this sort of seductress element. While this film, they're every single one. They're the hackers. They're the, they're the ones on the inside. They're the ones doing the switches. They're the ones making all the plans, doing all of the, making all of the maps and all of the model designs. They're just everywhere in this film and they do an incredibly good job at just making each individual character have, it, uh, have their own place. Like some of my particular favorites are the moment, the first moment we see Sandra Bullock, we see her instantly conning people and just like getting involved in that, getting involved in that culture. She basically deceives the parole board. She goes straight into a shop and starts, starts conning her way into like a lot of expensive objects. You see her conning her way into an expensive hotel room. That's so much more effective than what the original film did, which is just, it just showed, it showed Danny in his uh, parole hearing coming out of prison and then he just instantly he just instantly looks for his crew for like the big heist on the casinos where here you see her doing, you see her doing the things you want to see a hustler do. And it's just a really great start. And so then when they start, uh, start building the team and looking for more of these quirky characters, you just believe that they put and pull this off a lot more. Granted some, uh, someone like say uh, like Aquafina's character, Constance can be a a little bit annoying with some of the dialogue, but I, I think that the type of character that she is, I can justify it a little bit, even if some of her lines are a little bit out of place. It goes off the way that you'd you'd want like a heist to go off. You know, there are like there are tricks here and there that basically cause complications. Granted, I think one of the biggest criticisms, apart from the entire female casting aspect, which I'll get into in a bit, uh, is the fact that this story doesn't really have many high stakes which I think there's a degree to which that might be true. But I think even then, they still do a good job of throwing the twists in and basically keeping you guessing. They do the really good thing that all heist films should do, which is putting in a handful of like moments and shots which seem to be completely unrelated and just seeing how they come in at the end. I think, again, one of the big reasons that people don't like this film or they think that this film shouldn't exist is because it comes from that era basically started by Ghostbusters the idea of just are they just trying to cash in on the idea of just an all-female cast and I think I think for me personally it doesn't do that because because at least there's a, there's a reason for this film to exist in that especially within say like criminal world women are the ones who are often massively oppressed so I think having a film where they actually use that to in their advantage there's a line in the film where they basically say uh men get listened to and women get ignored for us for this plan to work we need to be ignored and i think that just sums up really well why exactly that's drawn in so for me and they they just build on that and i think they they build a lot of strong interesting female characters the one part i won't defend is the casting of james corden as an insurance fraud investigator and yeah like that that guy can burn in hell he is not convincing as someone who has connections with the criminal world and has the intimidating persona over anyone because he's talking about like missing the Arsenal game and just how things have become bloody interesting. Shut up. Shut up, you useless actor. You should not have been cast in this film. But beside him, I just thought it was a nice little story. And also there's a nice little tribute. To, there's nice little tributes to the originals. So the fact you see um, like Elliot Gold and uh, Keen Shaobo uh, do reprise their roles and they're really good moments to see. They help basically A, make it so that like this is part of the Ocean's uh, universe. And I think they're really good callbacks to fans, but also just 
builds on the pressure because when uh, Elliot's gold character appears at the beginning, he's basically saying, what you're doing will get you back in prison. There's no way that you can pull this off. This is a good plan, but there's no way you can pull this off. And I think that's a really good way of establishing that story. I'm not going to lie. When I went into this film, I had massive reservations. I thought it was just going to be, they're all going to be like seductresses and they're just going to really play on that element of women. It's not that at all. I think, I think one character may come close but even then, it's always done in a way that's like completely in her control. So there's none of that over-sexualization. And I just think it's, I think it's an incredibly underrated film. Because I think while it didn't, didn't get any majorly bad reviews, nobody's obsessed with this film, apart from me. Well, can I just say, I think I'm in love with you, Craig. Yeah? Um, because I, I, I've not agreed with you more, I think, ever. Like, I was so worried you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to see the Ghostbusters remake. I was going to be like, oh, no. No, um, I genuinely are, hated that film. You know, you, you are just totally right with this one. And I think it works as a, as a female-led remake because they've done three male films. The thing about Ghostbusters, for me, was it just felt forced. There was no reason to do it. This is kind of a play on that. It's kind of, oh, well, the men have done it three times, and you're bored with it. And believe me, I was bored with it. But the last Ocean's film, I was like, I'm done with this franchise. It's so boring. And so they came back, and it's fresh. It's new. And most importantly, even though the story is kind of blasé, the cast are fantastic. They're not just good. Uh, Sandra Bullock and Anne Hathaway in particular are really, really strong in this. It, Anne Hathaway is brilliant. And they've got so much charisma, each of the women, and you're right. I like the fact that each of them had their role and you believed that they were masters at what they do. Even Rihanna, like that's how good the film is. Rihanna is not particularly a great actress, but after watching this, I was like, wow, like I'm, I really think she could go far if she has this kind of direction. And whereas kind of the Ghostbusters remake for me is like, well, Melissa McCarthy is not a scientist and I'm not, you're not going to make me believe that she's a scientist. So stop forcing it. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't hate the Ghostbusters remake. I just, you know, I think for, for this one, I'm so glad you chose this. And um, you're right. The cast are brilliant. I, I'm going to go back and rewatch it because I have not watched it since I watched it in the cinema. Totally with you. Uh, I think you're right. I think critically it did well, but no one's come out of it and gone, Oh, well, I love that Ocean's 8. And I'm glad you did, Craig. I've got to say, you know, I'm defending this film. Well done. Yeah, because I think the big example is that there's no cry for an Ocean 9. Which is a shame. I had a weird experience uh, with Ocean's 8, which I just want to mention quickly, because I'm sure Dan will um, be able to put uh, a name to the sound. I was sat there towards the front row because I didn't want to really sit by many people. I went on my own. It was weird that me and Dan weren't together because we were doing our other show at the time. And um, I remember sitting quite far away from everybody, but somebody, as was always the case, had to come and sit like on my row. And about 20 minutes into the film, I just heard snoring, like the loudest <laughs> snoring. And it was just so infuriating. I would later learn who that person was and we're actually, you know, quite good colleagues now. And um, <laughs> weirdly, but yeah, even though there was snoring and stuff going on, which was really annoying, I actually remember when me and, I think me and Dan talked about it before on the radio, I remember me and Dan being in the same camp. I thought this was really, really terrific. The only exception was Kate Blanchett. I did not care for Kate Blanchett in the film. I thought perhaps in further films, maybe they would have given her a bit more character. I, I couldn't tell if it was her performance or the writing, but 
out of all the cast, and the cast are tremendous, I thought that Kate Blanchett for me just didn't work. And other than that, I remember coming out of it and I really liked the first Oceans film, Oceans 11, I really like it. And I remember coming out of it and like you said, there's been no call for a sequel, but I remember coming out thinking I'd be down for, for another one of those adventures. And I think that's kind of where I judge any kind of reboot or remake or anything like that these days is would I be willing to spend another hour and a half, two hours in the company of those characters? And I came out thinking, yes, absolutely I would. Because it kind of, I don't know, it kind of fizzed and snapped more than the original. It had an energy about it, which, which was really appreciated. I really liked it. And I think it is a shame that it has maybe hasn't, whether it's the critical response or whatever, that it hasn't kind of been calls for a sequel. Because I am going to be controversial. I didn't even mind the Ghostbusters reboot, the the all-female cast. I think it's a shame that these films, which are being made with female-led casts, aren't doing as well for whatever reason. Because companies, the studio execs, will automatically take that as, oh, we're not going to do these types of films anymore. I'm going to agree with Dan on this. I think it's a really good choice and hopefully people will go out and revisit it because it certainly demands that, I think. Yeah, I I think interestingly, I agree with everything you guys said. I think Dan made a really good point, which obviously, you know, Craig started as well by saying that, you know, there was good justification for having an all-female cast because the men have had their time. So whereas Ghostbusters didn't feel as deserved because it wasn't like, oh, where, you know, Ghostbusters wasn't about them being all men. It was just that they were a team of friends. So I think that, yeah, it makes complete sense that they did this. And like Craig says, they they weave that into the story, which which justifies it as well. And there's also that element of, you know, you don't suspect them. I think, you know, originally when Craig was making his point, I was like, well, do I think it would be, you know, so redeemed in the element of I sort of was a bit like critics. It was just, I kind of had like a lukewarm response to it. I liked a lot of elements to it, but I didn't come out of it being like, oh, that was amazing. Oh, that was great. Because I suppose elements like James Corden sort of dampened it for me. I think like you, Joe, I felt the Kate Blanchett felt like there just needed to be more from her character. I think there were some suggestions that people felt she might've been like an LGBT character, but there was no sort of part of the story which maybe suggested that that's just one of those things they do in Hollywood where they say oh this character's LGBT but there's nothing in the film about it and I also felt that Sarah Paulson and Mindy Kaling were kind of just meh characters I felt everyone else had a sort of like role and a personality but I didn't feel that they sort of came out as much like feeling oh that's what they do and that's who they are but like I said I did really enjoy Aquafina, Rihanna, Sandra Bullock they all do great jobs and yeah, and like Craig said, you know, there, there should be an Ocean's Nine. And then by you guys saying it as well, you know, my feelings are, yeah, I would like to see an Ocean's Nine because I think the gala sequence is really fun. So on that basis, I kind of have to say that, yeah, it's not guilty because I would like to see an Ocean's Nine. So there, there we are, Craig. With no James, Corden, no James Corden, no James Corden. Yeah, James Corden, you can go in prison. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think we all, we're all in agreement. I think I would dare say your film out of all of ours, I think, is... Uh, Definitely not guilty for that, Um, so well done. Well, there we are. Well, what a fun show we've had. And if you've seen any of these films that we've spoken about, if you've got any opinions on them, please make sure uh, to comment below, uh, follow us, Dan Joe Film Show, um, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also catch up on all our old episodes. Uh, We're going to give Craig and David now time, so um, tell us, guys, where can people find you online? 
Uh, well, you can find us at Well Good Movies on all podcast outlets. Uh, so iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, all those uh, good places. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook under the same name. And you can also find our parent website where we do like reviews and uh, opinion pieces at freshtakehub.com. And that's freshtakehub.com slash wellgoodmovies if you want to see like our complete list of episodes. And also, if you know you check it out in a week's time, then you'll get to experience us all again, talking about the movies that we hate that everyone else loves, which is going to be a lot of fun. And I know you and you and uh, Joe have said about you've got some some good ones already planned for that. I'm intrigued by Dan's because he, I don't know if he's if he's told you guys, but apparently he's done his research. Yeah, and it's a film that me. David and Craig both love. So for, yeah. for all three of us to love a film and Dan to hate it, I am intrigued. I can't <laughs> yeah. wait. Yeah, and you know what? I, I've had sweat over the next episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be absolutely scared, really, really scared, because, uh, um, you know, we'll, we're waiting to see, but it's going to be fun, definitely, for that. And I can't wait to hear all your picks as well. So, yeah, definitely make sure to head over to the Well Good Movies uh, page for that to listen to uh, the second part of this uh, kind of challenge that we're doing and also one last thing um we've both been kind of not nominated i guess but we're putting ourselves forward for the british podcast podcast awards uh, which has kind of just been allowed entries for this uh, this year so if you want to go and vote for the dan and joe film show uh, you can find all the details on our facebook and twitter instagram page and likewise uh, with well good movies if you want to vote for them as well you can vote for both of us go to their facebook page and um, it's got all the details on there um, all you need to do is basically uh, choose uh, the podcast write your name email address and submit and it's all done um and thank you again to our guests craig mcdonald and david oscar it's always a pleasure and we look forward to speaking with you um on your show uh, next time around and thank you so much for listening and watching and we'll see you guys very soon goodbye Bye-bye. bye bye bye